you do feel your doctor is actually in a more powerful position. So I think doctors should just acknowledge that and appreciate it. It doesn't mean that patient is trying to educate the doctor or expect something unrealistic from them. They just want to feel a bit more in power. That's why they go with that information. You have more power over your health than what you've been told. This is the Healthy Lifestyle Solutions Podcast. I'm Maya Acosta, and I'm passionate about finding healthy lifestyle solutions to support optimal human health. If you're willing to go with me, together we can discover how simple lifestyle choices can help improve our quality of life and increase longevity in a big way. Let's get started. Very recently, Maria Shriver did a piece on medical gaslighting. This is when a physician dismisses or misdiagnoses a patient's illness and blames it on psychological factors. It's basically all in your head. And females are more likely to be gaslighted by their physicians. While today's topic is not exactly on gaslighting, it's about health equity and racism in healthcare. Patients of certain backgrounds are less likely to re- receive adequate care and treatment by their physicians. My hope with this episode is to help raise awareness that some patients face real fears and at times feel intimidated by their doctors. My goal is to help empower individuals to speak up when they have health concerns. My guest, Dr. Leila Dagan, is passionate about food justice and health equity. She aims to find effective ways to address racial and socioeconomic issues that affect health. Her project, Food and Diversity, seeks to introduce a plant-based diet to people of the global majority. She is the education lead and a member of the advisory board for the Plant-Based Health Professionals UK. I enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Leila so much that I hope that you enjoy it as well and that you find it helpful. Let's welcome Dr. Leila. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You know, I heard your story. And so, um, and and you don't always share it on the platforms. I've been listening to podcasts um, where you've been talking about various topics, how you went from being a physician to kind of now guiding your um, clients more towards more as a nutritionist. And we'll, we'll talk about that as well. One thing that I found so fascinating about you is your story, your, your, your roots, uh, where you're from, the transition that you experienced when you moved countries. Can you tell us what life was like growing up in Iran? Sure. Uh, yes. I mean, I, I was quite younger, you know, when we were still living in Iran. But uh, to understand, you know, in Iran, it is this, this uh, big kind of uh, difference between people who are religious, so they are tradition, but it's like kind of, you know, not re- uh, religious in the meaning that they are traditional religious. I think, you know, you can be religious, you can practice your religion, but still be tolerant. But some people are traditionally kind of, you know, religious. So and so my family is actually more traditional rather than religious. So they were just, you know, following the traditions. And uh, so, you know, I grew up in this family where we were Muslims. I was a practicing Muslim, so I was covering myself and everything. And uh, and uh, I didn't see it as a burden because a lot of people, a lot of women especially, think that, you know, that was a burden. But for me, I have always been into sports. So for me, I think the main thing, the main obstacle was that, you know, I felt like I couldn't actually engage in physical activity in exercises, you know, kind of, I couldn't do that. So, um, 
But I was lucky because my dad used to be quite an open-minded guy. So he was actually, although he was traditional, but he was open-minded and he really wanted his daughters. For him, it was education was really important. Although he was uneducated himself, he hadn't finished the schools, but he knew that, you know, if you had a good education, you could help other people. So that was the message I was, I was getting that, you know, you have to get an education so that you can actually help other people. So, so yeah, that was very important for him. And so when we moved to Austria, uh, it was like kind of, you know, obviously it's uh, not a Muslim country. So we were kind of, we weren't forced, but we wanted to kind of assimilate. We wanted to be part of the society. So we, I had actually to kind of remove my hijab, my like kind of, you know, my headscarf. And, but I think, you know, when you grow up in a different culture, you see this clash within these two different cultures and you have to kind of navigate through the system, through the cultures and all these people asking you all these questions, like kind of, so your country is like so primitive, you do this and that, and you have to defend yourself, defend your ways of being. So it's like kind of, no, it's not like that. You know, the media likes sensational kind of headlines, you know, but no, we do have cars. We actually drive cars. It's not like, you know, we are not riding camels. You know, it's so, so it was really kind of sometimes, uh, if I may call it that, stupid questions. Obviously, at school, you know, young children, they are asking these questions. So, or, you know, like kind of, you know, does your father actually beat up your mom? No, it doesn't happen all the time. It's not like that, that, you know, every kind of Muslim man is beating up his wife. So I felt like I was always just defending my culture, my background, which probably, and at the same time, you know, I couldn't understand the new culture. And I was also under this pressure to actually kind of go and get an education. I enjoyed studying, I must say. So I was quite lucky in that sense. You know, I enjoyed studying. I was good at my studies, which made it easier for me. And in a way, I wanted to help. So it was, again, easy for me to choose medicine, but it was also what my father wanted for me so it was his wish that all his children you know I have another sister and two brothers he wanted all of us actually to study medicine and become doctors so that we could give back to the society and uh, yeah my sister is also a doctor but my brothers didn't uh, actually kind of follow that path so yes I mean uh, it was uh, it is sexism you know you actually experience as a woman I think you do it all your life in one way or another but in some settings it is more prominent like kind of you know I remember as I said I was very sporty if I would do like kind of you know I started doing karate as a teenager or if I would go cycling people would look at me and they would think that I'm doing it because I want to lose weight they could never kind of imagine that I'm actually doing it because I enjoy doing it or if I was doing martial arts they thought oh are you looking for a man from that background, as if, you know, like kind of, you know, I would only do things just to attract a man. So I couldn't have my own mind, my own kind of desires. So, yes, it was there. But at the same time, Austria is a very racist country. So it was always like kind of I was the foreigner. I mean, they don't even call it like immigrants. We were the foreigners. That is, the, you know, the German word for, you know, immigrants is more like foreigner. And I was the good one. I was one of them just because they knew me. So it wasn't like kind of I was doing anything special, but they knew me. So I was one of them. I'm okay. I was okay to stay there, to be there, but not everybody else. So which was for me like, yeah, but then, you know, if you didn't know me, I would be one of the, those you didn't want to have in the country. So for me, um, 
racism played a huge role when I was growing up. And especially when I went to medical school, I had uh, situations where, you know, the professor actually pointed his finger to my head, you know, doing an exam, asking me a question and said, you know, if uh, a gun was pointed to your head, what would you answer? And uh, if I was, and I complained, obviously, and everybody was just telling me, just be happy that you are actually granted permission to study at our university. And so it was, yeah, so that's why I'm so vocal about racism. Wow. But also you talk about what, why the message is not getting out to certain communities about veganism. I have always felt that I'm the only person that's not white in most of the groups that I'm part of, in most of the things that I'm interested in, because because I did sort of move away from what was expected of me. I was expected to be married in my 20s and to have children. That was what I was supposed to do. And I fought against it because I wanted different. I wanted something different for myself. And so I wonder if you felt any pressure as well to follow, you know, a certain lifestyle. Yes, definitely. I think, you know, when you come from those backgrounds, as a woman in general, you're expected to get married as soon as possible and have children. And I, I was actually, when I was working as a doctor, I was a pediatrician. So when I was working with all these kids, their parents, the first question they would ask me is like kind of, how many kids do you have? And I was like, I'm not even married. I don't want to have, and I don't even want to have kids, you know. And they were they they asking me, so how many do you have? None. And I'm always going to have none. It doesn't mean that, you know, I'm not a good doctor. So, yes, there is this pressure that you have to get married. You have to kind of follow that lifestyle. And uh, like yourself, you know, uh, that wasn't what I wanted for myself. I wanted something uh, different. And again, you mentioned that, you know, in a lot of settings, you are the only one from your background. And that is where the feeling I get, especially, you know, I do martial arts. It's a male-dominated sport. So a lot of times, you know, I'm like the only, not the only woman necessarily, but definitely the only woman from my background. So so I can definitely uh, identify with that, what you are saying. And I think, you know, it makes life a bit more challenging, but at the same time, maybe more rewarding because when you re- uh, achieve something, you know that you have worked really hard for it. And uh, when it comes to plant-based communities, yes, it is quite, if I may say so, white. It's a white uh, community. And uh, I have had the people, like, you know, when I was submit some of those articles to magazines, I had actually somebody tell me that, like, I cannot actually publish your article in this magazine because we are actually targeting white middle class women and they wouldn't be interested in what you are, uh, what, we, what you have to say. And yet you have so much to contribute. How can they not see the value in that? Yeah, but I think, you know, when you start talking about uh, issues like uh, um, racism, diversity, it makes people uncomfortable. And it's not just the white people, even, you know, uh, people you know of color they can get uncomfortable because uh, you know it is quite traumatic what we experience all these experiences and we but we still have to carry on we don't really share it with anybody and every experience is unique in a way you know I know the racism I have experienced is so different than what my brothers have experienced because obviously I'm a woman I have a title you know I'm a doctor my brother is a, a, a guy a male and he's a construction worker, so his experience is going to be so different to mine. So uh, when, even when we are talking to each other, we feel like, you know, uh, something is missing. 
And it is not an easy subject. So you shared a little bit about why you wanted to go into medicine, but it was an experience that you had in medical school that sort of gravitated you towards veganism. Is that right? Yeah, kind of. It is interesting because I was never really kind of into animals. Uh, it's funny, actually, uh, recently I was uh, in a cafe with my dog and I met an um, uh, a half Italian, half Iraqi woman. And she asked me, so, you know, you're from the Middle East. How comes you are actually into animal rescue? Because most women from that area, they don't like animals. And I was probably like one of them. You know, I didn't like animals. I was even afraid of them. So so when I went actually in, at medical school, I remember it was the first year we were dissecting a human arm. Just looking at the muscle fibers, I felt like, wow, that is like the meat I eat at night. And I just uh, find that so a bit gross. I said, no, I cannot do that anymore. So I became vegetarian at the time. But it wasn't really for animals. It was more just because I just thought, no, it almost feels like I'm eating human flesh. But like everybody else, I thought eating meat is the normal thing to do. And also, you know, in Iran, eating kebab on uh, Sundays like is the big thing. So I felt like if I'm not eating kebab and I'm already living abroad anyway, so it's almost like I'm actually betraying my uh, roots. So I felt like, you know, from time to time I had to eat, you know, meat. It was almost like forcing myself. But then, you know, I met uh, a group of martial artists and uh, they were vegetarians. And because obviously I, I'm a martial artist, I, I felt really inspired. And I said, okay, if they can be, you know, they were professional martial artists, they were winning competitions. So if they can, you know, be vegetarian, why not me? So I went fully vegetarian at the time. But then later, you know, I left medical, uh, I left medicine because of health problems, and uh, I got involved in dog rescue. Uh, so we were rescuing dogs from Romania and Bosnia. And uh, a fellow rescuer, you know, shared a video on the dairy industry and egg industry. So as soon as I knew that, like, kind of, you know, that the milk I'm consuming, the eggs are actually kind of coming with a lot of cruelty, with a lot of violence, with a lot of bad energy. I just couldn't have it in my body anymore. I just, and it was, for me, it was actually, I went vegan then and there. I know not everybody can do that. And I appreciate that or respect that. But for me, I just said like, you know what? I cannot have that bad energy in my body. So I went vegan overnight kind of, yeah. Right. And did you receive a lot of backlash from family and friends? You know, because I have always done things a little bit differently. So, uh, it was like, okay, there she goes again. <laughs> She's doing something new. <laughs> so, you know, it wasn't like kind of, you know, like backlash, but it was like, okay, we are used to you doing something new, fine. But, uh, you know, later when I transitioned to a whole food plant-based diet from being a junk food vegan, I healed my migraines and I was doing really great. And my mom, obviously, she knew how much I was suffering from migraines, you know, how much that was affecting my life. But even so... She would look at me and say, oh, gosh, she looks so pale. You know, <laughs> this new vegan diet is not really doing you well. And I was like, kind of, but you saw the difference. You know, I'm actually having a life now. Whereas before, I was in bed all the time. So it wasn't really backlash like that, but it was more like kind of, you know, not acceptance. And uh, it, it is really difficult for me to actually um, kind of um, bring my family, inspire my family to go vegan because uh, uh, they, they are still living in Austria. 
So I remember once I visited my family and I took them. There are a lot of vegan restaurants in Vienna. So I took them to this vegan restaurant, like kind of, you know, let me show them how delicious vegan food is. But we were actually, we experienced racism in that restaurant. Although it was like empty, completely empty. They gave us a seat at the back and they were really unfriendly. So they didn't really help me to actually kind of, you know, bring the message to my family. So, yes. Oh, my goodness. Well, that makes sense. How do we get people, our people on board if we don't have representation, like you said? Now, I'm really impressed because you devoted your life initially to becoming a physician. So you did all the school, all the training to then kind of pivot to then continue on your journey towards wellness in a different approach through nutrition. So then you went back to school. So your degree in public health was after medicine. Yes, it was actually a few years later. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And I've heard that's a tough degree. Is it? I don't know. It is for me, the year when I actually transitioned to a whole food plant-based diet and regained my health, it was, I was free. I mean, I cannot, I mean, even now I'm so used to this new normal. So, but when I look back, you know, uh, imagine being in bed 20 days of, uh, per month and then suddenly you are free. You can do whatever you want to do. So I think I had a lot of energy. <laughs> I wanted to kind of catch up on life. Like kind of, you know, I have to do this. I have to do that. So I, I didn't find it difficult. I, uh, maybe it was a bit challenging because, uh, especially when you are studying nutrition, there is, oh, you hear about protein, uh, complementing you know there was a, still a lecturer was, uh, who was saying that you know if you're eating plant-based uh, food you have to you know combine plant proteins so stuff like that but uh, otherwise I didn't as I said I was just full of energy and I feel like you know when I look back in the last three and a half years uh, you know I have been just working hard uh, but it is all, also because I feel like you know I have to catch up I missed so many years of my life just being in pain and not doing the things I love to do. So, yeah. Yes, I understand. I often say that at my age, 51, I feel better than I did when I was 35. It's just incredible. So you now have um, dedicated your life towards supporting clients and you're part of Plant-Based Health Professionals UK. How did you learn about the group and how did you find your people in a sense, like when we find our community, our plant-based community, how did all of that come about? Well, the Plant-Based Health Professionals UK, they're actually a community interest company and they were founded by Dr. Shirin Kassam. And I first heard of them in 2018 when they were actually hosting their first ever conference in nutrition for medicine. And for me, that event was actually that conference, that one day conference was life changing because that is when I learned about the whole food plant-based diet. So I, you know, that is when I actually decided, okay, I'm going to change my diet because I was suffering from these chronic migraines. And uh, so I always feel like, you know, I'm so grateful to them for what they are doing. So what they are really doing, what the aim of the organization is that, you know, educating other healthcare professionals, but also the public about the benefits of a whole food plant-based diet. And then um, towards the end of my master's degree, actually, Dr. Shirin Kassam asked me to join their team as a board member. And then, you know, a year later, I started, you know, working for them as the education lead. So, I mean, it's a small group. 
of healthcare professionals. We have like kind of, you know, 19 members who are active and then, you know, a few uh, advisory board members. But uh, we do quite a lot. You know, we have uh, a website with a lot of uh, um, fact sheets. I think, we, I think we have more than 40 fact sheets. We host webinars and you already mentioned the 21-day plant-based health challenge. Uh, so, yes, we are just active really spreading the message. So that is what we do. And there's so much to do. Like um, Shirin sometimes says, you know, at some point you have to stop doing it because there's always something else you could do to promote the message. But yes. Exactly. And sometimes we forget to celebrate those achievements, the successes that we've done. It's it's almost like we bypass them. Okay, I, I did this. Okay, let's move on to the next thing. I noticed that Chef AJ hosted several of you as she did like a whole week of plant-based health professionals UK and featured several professionals as well. Okay, so I am interested in us talking about health equity, uh, food diversity, and if you can explain a little bit more to our listeners, because these are sort of terms uh, they, they may not they may not be familiar with, especially the one on global majority. Is that, so the first time I've heard that was with you. Is that something that you've kind of coined or where does this come from? I read about the, you know, people of the global majority um, on the Encompass, uh, which is an organization which is helping uh, to kind of fight, uh, fight racism in the animal kind of rights movement, you know, in the plant-based community. And the term is coined, I don't know by whom, to be honest, but uh, it refers to, you know, black, indigenous and people of color. So and the idea is to empower people, you know, by uh, instead of saying ethnic minorities, which makes them like kind of a small group, or even by saying people of color, or, you know, it makes them like kind of, okay, they are not white. Saying people of the global majority just shows that there are actually a lot of us and it is not just in these countries, like in America, in the US or in the UK. Actually, you know, you find them everywhere. And also by calling them people of the global majority, we are not fo- too much focused on the skin color. Because I think sometimes when we, are, we focus too much on the skin color, which can play a huge role, actually, how we are treated and discriminated against. I don't uh, you know, deny that. But then, like, for example, I have heard from a lot of people saying, oh, you're actually kind of white, you know, because I'm fair skinned. So I think, you know, just not focusing too much on the skin color, just uh, seeing that we are a huge, actually, population, it can be empowering. So that is the idea. Okay, thank you for clarifying that. Also, um, you know, at one point, we were using the terms underrepresented um, or underserved. So what would be the right term to when we're speaking about someone of a, you know, a lower socioeconomic status? I don't know. Uh, It's really because it keeps changing, as you say. In the UK, we used to call them BAME, Black Asian Minority Ethnic Groups. But then they realized if you call them ethnic minorities, then you're actually kind of including the gypsies, for example, who are white. So who are actually European. So that's why we moved away from them, that. I, I actually like the term myself. I don't have any problems with that. But I can understand that, you know, again, we are talking about the different people from diverse backgrounds you know, and somebody might actually not like hearing ethnic minority because they don't see themselves as a minority. They don't want to see themselves as a minority. And also, like, you know, whenever we talk about ethnic minorities or even BIPOC, we're always focusing on what is uh, missing. You know, we always talk about the 
health statistics, which is like kind of obesity is, uh, you know, more prevalent in those communities, heart diseases, you know, it's like kind of, you know, all the problems. We don't actually celebrate their achievements. We don't celebrate who they are and uh, what they have done, you know, to contribute to the communities. So I think we are still going to struggle. And a lot of people don't know, uh, are not familiar with the term of, you know, people of the global majority or vegans of the global majority. They don't know what that means. So it's going to take a long time before actually it is kind of more common. Yes. And so we'll be talking about two different topics. I think one is just access to healthcare, and then the other one is on food diversity. So if we can start maybe with the one on healthcare. So I would like to hear more from your perspective of what you are talking about when it comes to access to healthcare. Sure. I think some countries, they have the insurance system where you need to have an insurance so that they pay for it. Uh, so that is something completely different. And uh, even here in the UK, you can have, you know, private insurance and the same in Austria, you can have private insurance, but healthcare as such is free. You know, you, you live in this country, you have access. So in this way, you think you would think, okay, that's great. Everybody has access to healthcare, you know, they can go and have the MRI, they can uh, go and have whatever test they want. But, and that is where the problem starts, that, you know, people who, let's call them people of the global majority, people, uh, you know, of the global majority, when they go and see their doctors, they face um, uh, discrimination. They face uh, you know, unconscious biases, and that actually affects the treatment they get. And for me, the way I see it is like kind of, you know, um, it is great that we have access, and it is great that we know what helps, you know, what tests you need to know to have, what kind of treatment. But if your doctor doesn't actually provide you with that, doesn't actually kind of... Uh, write the test for you, doesn't send you for those blood tests or for that MRI or whatever, then you are not really getting it. And it is uh, interesting because in the UK just recently, a couple of uh, weeks ago, a new report came out, which is showing that, you know, the racism in the national health system. And there is also this issue that a lot of times, you know, when uh, people of the global majority, when they go and see the doctors, there may be a language barrier, but sometimes it's not the language barrier as such, more the cultural barrier or people, you know, as soon as they see somebody from that background, uh, doctors have these uh, preconceived ideas that, oh, they're not going to have real problems. It's going to just be anxiety. It's going to be this and that. So they may not actually hear them all. They may not really pay attention. And uh, for me, obviously, I'm a doctor myself. I know, you know, how to talk to another doctor. But I have experienced that myself as well. But then because I know my rights, I know about medicine and how it works, I can actually raise my voice and say, no, I want this because of this and that. But there are a lot of people who feel intimidated, you know, by um, figures of authority, for example. In many ways, Dr. Leila, like I consider myself a patient advocate, like I want to help empower people to have a voice to know, like these kind of conversations are helpful. Because it and when we talk about anything from heart disease to breast cancer, it gives um, people language words that they can use when they go to their physician. I I myself, I realized, you know, um, when I was suspicious, that I had thyroid problems. I remember taking a book that I had uh, read and I took it to my endocrinologist for the first time. And he just kind of laughed at me and he goes, you can put your book down. 
And then I said, I just wanted to let you know that this is what I've been reading. This is what I suspect is going on. And sometimes physicians feel a little bit, um, I, I don't want to say threatened, but annoyed by people like myself who go in there armed with information. And yet there, there are other people like my mother who um, has a heavy accent, whose doctor speaks down to her. And my mother will tell me, and it makes me very angry because I can't be there to to defend her. I guess that's what you're saying is that many of us maybe do not know how to not go in there fighting, but, you know, feel comfortable with um, speaking with a doctor and in asking questions. Yes, but it is. Yes, but it's not just on patients. I actually talk to healthcare professionals and I always tell them you need to have keep an open mind, you know, and it also applies to doctors of color. Just because you are a doctor of color, don't assume that, you know, you are going to treat them fairly. You, I mean, I actually recently heard there is a term called conforming bias. So when you keep seeing your colleagues, your white colleagues, treating those patients that a certain way, you actually kind of give in and conform. So whatever they are doing, you take it on. So you do the same thing. So just because you're a person of color yourself doesn't mean that, you know, you understand it. So for me, it's always like kind of keep an open mind and listen to them. Don't assume, just imagine what would you do and say if it was a white person sitting in front of you. And I think doctors should also understand the reason why Patients might go there with books or say, I Googled it. It's because, you know, when you go, I have been patient all my life. Actually, I have been probably more patient than a doctor throughout my life because of my migraines. And when you go there, you feel so vulnerable. You feel actually in a weak position. And you're sitting there feeling small. So by saying that, actually, I know a little bit about my, you know, condition, you are trying to gain some power back. So that is what you are trying just to create a, a bit of balance between, you know, you, yourself and your doctor. Otherwise, yes, you, you do already feel like your doctor is actually in a more powerful position. So I think doctors should just, you know, acknowledge that and appreciate it. It doesn't mean that the mm, patient is trying to kind of mm, educate the doctor or expect something unrealistic from them. They just want to feel a bit more in power. That is it. That's why they go with that information. Well, this is all making a lot of sense. So when you say, for example, that some physicians may not even order certain labs for their patients, it's because they might, for whatever reason, like you say, the, their judgment about it, um, it kind of reminds me of how some individuals or some physicians don't speak to their patients about plant-based foods because in their mind, they're already thinking, well, this person's not going to listen. They don't care where you haven't given that patient an opportunity to hear the message. It's something that's um, very hard to do nowadays when you only have 15 minutes to speak with a patient. Yes, and that's why it is a problem of the system, not just the individual doctors, because you do need the time. You need to, uh, to have the time to actually see the person in front of you as a human being rather than a patient with a diagnosis. You know, I'm not my migraine. Um, uh, I'm whoever I am. So I think and that is a, a challenge for doctors, especially as you say, you know, if you have 10, 15 minutes and you know that you're already running late and you know that your patient is going to, the next one is going to be angry because actually, you know, you're late. So I think there is a lot of issues going on. So I don't, I'm not blaming just one person. It's not the doctor. It's not the patient. We all play a role. So we all need to take responsibility for our part and do our part. And then together, we can actually create those changes. What can we do to kind of soften that, that relationship, that experience that patients have 
with everyone, it, because it's not just a physician, it's the nurse practitioner, it's the nurse, it's anyone that we come in contact with, we feel like this little you are right. And, uh, you know, I actually recently had to complain to the receptionist at my doctor's surgery because she, like you were saying, the way she was talking to me, like kind of, you know, uh, what do you know? Like kind of. And then again, I'm lucky because I'm a doctor. Then I reminded her I'm a doctor. So I know what I'm talking about. But what about those people who are not in that position? And a lot of us are not. And I think, again, firstly, you need to find you may not be able to change your doctor, the receptionist, the nurse then and there. So you need to have a support system that when you come out of that, uh, you know, office, that you can go somewhere and feel safe and loved and appreciated and respected. Because what happens is when you go and like you say, you you feel so little, uh, you know, you need to come back and uh, find your dignity again. And that is why you need to have a community. So, you know, really having a community is so important. And I think for doctors, it's really just keeping an open mind and always re- reminding themselves that this is just a human being sitting in front of me who is vulnerable. Because, you know, we already feel you know, vulnerable when we are in pain. Now you're going to a stranger asking for help. And you may be anxious because you don't know what is going on. You know, and you have heard all these uh, horrible stories from neighbors and friends. So I think we just need to remember that we're all human beings. We have all our, you know, life challenges. But even the same, you know, with patients. When you're sitting in front of the doctor, don't assume that they are having sitting there and having coffee. Because I think that is what a lot of people, you know, believe. It's all these movies, you know, we watch. All these uh, TV shows about doctors who are always leaving the hospital, going, uh, doing something personal. It, that's not real life. Doctors, you know, I, I have been on both sides. Sometimes you're working two, three hours, you know, without a um, break. You haven't even had a, t- a time to go to the you know, bathroom. So again, I think both sides need to, to actually kind of take a moment, take a deep breath and see the human being in front of them. I think that's why I find lifestyle medicine practices, the way that many of the physicians that are plant-based are moving towards, um, I find them more appealing because it, it now I'm sure that issues could also happen in settings like that. But I feel like there's a this idea of a team that's being built to support the individuals. They're all coming together to offer support, which is very different than the system that they come from. I don't know what you think about that. Definitely. I think uh, the medical system, the way it is at the moment, it is like kind of what pill can I prescribe? Uh, So it's almost like kind of uh, as soon as somebody starts talking, you're thinking what pill would actually help with that problem instead of actually listening to the whole story, because maybe it's not the pill, maybe it's not the medication, maybe it is just showing them that uh, they have been heard. You know, they have been uh, listened to and we forget that uh, we forget about the social determinants of health. We forget that, you know, uh, there are so many other factors going on which are making us sick. But uh, sometimes, when you know, maybe your housing situation is bad and that's why you have the pain. So that's why you need to listen to them. Just uh, hearing like somebody has, I don't know, pain in their legs is not enough. Maybe there is that they don't have, you know, they live on the fifth floor and they have to kind of climb the stairs every day and they can't do that. You know, just listening to the whole uh, person and to the whole story rather than just focusing on one problem. And I just think you're right in the lifestyle medicine because they actually 
include all these other aspects, exercise, you know, smoking and having a sense of community. They already include that in the consultation. They are actually more likely to see the whole person. Right. And then also when we think of certain cultures and how difficult it is, um, you know, men, certain men that are machistas, like, you know, like my father, it took a, oh, I mean, it was very hard to get him to just go and get screened to see if he had diabetes, you know, years ago. I think it will take time. And, uh, you know, but we can change the system. You know, we have created the system. At some point, we have created the system because we thought that works or that's more efficient. Now we are realizing it is not anymore. So with small changes, we can actually change the system again. So now what do you mean um, when you're talking about food diversity? Can we explore that topic now? Sure. For me, the, the way I see it, you know, when I was actually working as a doctor, I didn't know about the role of diet in disease prevention. So when I learned about, you know, the power of nutrition, of diet, I was like, oh, doctors are missing out on something. And then I learned about the social determinants of health. I learned that, you know, social factors, environment, em uh, employment, where we live, all of that actually affects our health. And when it comes to food, Uh, it's also about, you know, we, we already touched on that. Uh, do we have actually access to healthy food? So, you know, telling someone this food is good for you, but they don't have access to it. So what is the point of that? And I think, again, uh, we, we are missing out on a, an opportunity here actually to change the system and uh, create healthier human you know, environment, actually. And I, when it, especially, you know, we uh, talked about racism, racism actually informs all the social determinants of health. So I think, you know, uh, when uh, we talk about obesity, heart disease, diabetes, and we know all of these diseases are actually more prevalent in the communities of uh, people of the global majority. So for me, I see the going plant-based as the solution. But getting them actually to eat a plant-based diet is not as uh, straightforward as, you know, we would think. And one of the reasons is, as we already said, you know, veganism or eating a plant-based diet is seen as this uh, white thing that only white people do. So, I mean, somebody actually told me that, you know, oh, that is something uh, white people do who don't have any real problems. And I have real problems. So I think, you know, we need to uh, kind of firstly remind in these communities that, you know, the traditional diet of all many of these communities is actually plant-based. So we need to actually get them to go back to what they were always eating, which was plant-based. But also, like, kind of, you know, uh, speak the language so that they understand it. I think that is it. A lot of it is actually lost because uh, the way we present the information. So making it culturally appropriate. You know, you mentioned that, you know, your father didn't want to go to the doctor. And uh, I see that with my own mom, you know, she doesn't like to go to doctors. And uh, but she's more comfortable if it is actually a doctor who speaks her language because she feels like he knows me. He knows my story. So, you know, it does. So I think, you know, changing all of that. And when it comes to plant based uh, diets, we need to create a So, uh, community which is more diverse. We need to, to have more re uh, representation. You mentioned, you know, there aren't a lot of podcasters from your background. And it is true. I mean, you know, there are probably more female vegans, but we always hear about male vegans having, you know, having done something amazing. So I think, you know, we really need to give them the platform so that, you know, people see other people who are, look like them out there talking about these issues. 
So we really need to provide a platform to them. And does it start with us, for example, myself as a Mexican, Mexican-American raised here in the country? Does it start with me reaching out to other Spanish-speaking people and saying, hey, you can, you know, come on board. Like, if you're already vegan, come on board and let's create programs. Let's offer support. Let's mentor other people. But you do need support. And I think that is the, where the issue starts. Actually, people of, um, people of the global majority they need the support of um, white allies because they have the platform. They have the following. If I go out there and create a project, nobody knows me. Nobody's going to kind of, you know, pay attention to my project. But if somebody else, uh, you know, an organization which has a huge following says, oh, actually, this is interesting. People will start watching it. So I think, you know, we, that's what the importance of having white allies who actually, and we need white vegans to realize that and give us the platform, help us to actually kind of, uh, I mean, I, I was talking to uh, animal um, activists in Asia, you know, from Japan and China, and they were saying that they need actually the vegans in the West give them the platforms because that gives them credibility among their own people. I know it feels weird, but if that is, uh, you know, what works, then we need to use that. That makes a lot of sense. And that reminds me, for example, the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. Early 2020, before the pandemic, I flew with my mother to D.C., to uh, do a two-day kind of a weekend immersion program. Uh, really, I was there for my mom to support her. And it was nice. She, she liked the food. Everything was good. Um, but I, I don't feel like it was a major transformation for her. And then when the pandemic hit, the Physicians Committee organized something similar online all in Spanish. And they invited a famous celebrity from Mexico <laughs> to kind of um, start, kick everything off. And so I said to my mother, I signed you up and you log in from your house. I'll, I log in from my house and we'll watch it together. And at the end of the day, she said, oh my goodness, I know what you mean by plant-based nutrition. I now get it. Well, the Physicians Committee from Responsible Medicine is the one responsible for having created this opportunity in Spanish. And so I guess we just need more opportunities like that. Yes. I mean, actually, PCRM just recently did a One Healthy World, and they had a class in Spanish, French, Chinese. And I thought that is great. I wish they would do something similar in Persian, because I know the same, you know, when I talk to my mom about plant-based diet, I don't think, I think she's even listening to me. But uh, one day she actually sent me a video by an Iranian doctor talking about a plant-based diet in Persian. And she was like, oh, yes, now I understand it. So, and it's not just a language. I mean, it does make a difference, even if you understand English. Hearing it in your own language is a bit different. I don't know. It just touches you more. And seeing that you can still have your own foods, the foods, you know, you associate with happy memories, you know, from your childhood, that you can still enjoy them on a plant-based diet. That is important as well. Right. And we feel validated when it's people that we can identify with. I know that when I first started this work, when we were doing events in person, uh, immediately I had this idea of we need to do this in Spanish. But at the same time, I was also learning like everyone else. Um, I think by then I had already done the eCornell course too, but I mean, I'm learning it. If I'm just learning all this in English, you know, I need to have that foundation first. But most of the people that we attracted were not Spanish-speaking Latinx community people. They were mainly um, 
you know, white Americans and uh, maybe, you know, patients of my husband's. So it's that's what we're attracting right now. And it's because I haven't gone into the communities. Um, and then that's just another gosh, an, a whole entire topic in itself of how do you outreach to people who hear, who need to hear this message. I heard you talk about the campaigning, for example, is we need to create campaigns that gravitate towards people who need this message. And as you mentioned, we need to have people who are kind of celebrities or semi-celebrities who speak. And I mean, I focus on athletes because I think, you know, people find usually athletes very inspiring. You know, they want to be like them. And we almost feel like, you know, athletes have achieved something, you know, impossible. So if they talk about a plant-based diet, people are actually listening to them. And I think, you know, we need to use those people to reach to those communities. Could you tell us more about that? Because that's another aspect of you just overall, just your being an athlete, um, loving martial arts. But then now you're, is this part of a series that you're interviewing athletes? I did this project, you know, at the start of the pandemic, actually, because I have always been kind of looking for ways to kind of reach those communities. You know, how can I actually spread the message to those communities? And it was interesting because we also talked about, you know, sexism. And I was reaching out to these athletes. And it was interesting. As soon as I would, as told, you know, I would email a, a male athlete, I would straight away get an answer, a link to calendar, you know, kind of, you know, to uh, schedule. But it was difficult to find actually female athletes. And somebody asked me, like, kind of, you know, you interviewed eight people, but only two of them are female. That wasn't, you know, my uh, goal. It was just like, it just happened because I got more responses from male athletes. And I think it's, again, it has to do with confidence. Maybe women are not as confident in general as men. Again, it can be just because the society doesn't actually kind of promote it, encourage it, you know. So it's, uh, may, men are usually more prone to say, oh, yes, I do it. Why not? I can do it. Whereas women need more preparation, maybe. I don't know. So anyway, yes, it was uh, I had the funding from uh, Veg Fund and ProVeg, and I just created eight videos. And I wanted it to be all, you know, people of color or vegans of the global majority. And I also had some uh, um, people, you know, in other countries, you know, Turkey, Iran, and um, uh, Mexico. I think I had somebody from Mexico or India. You know, I had asked them to actually just uh, uh, record themselves saying that, you know, from which country they are originally from and how long they have been vegan, just to show people that, you know, that is how a vegan can look like, not necessarily a white vegan. Uh, and but I also wanted to focus, you know, that is my focus is health. So I had healthcare professionals of color, vegan healthcare professionals of color. So we covered, you know, different topics, but also covered racism and intersectionality because I think that is so important. Uh, and we are seeing more and more uh, kind of, you know, research coming out that race. I mean, we knew, we knew it to be honest. It's not even new. We knew that you know racism affects your health. It can create uh, chronic stress and. We know what chronic stress does to body. So yes, I covered that as well. I think it is very important that we speak about that. The way that I like to think about it is that many uh, white people have created the path already, have laid down the foundation for some of the things that are new to our communities. And that's where you're saying we need them as allies. And how can we support one another so that we can get more people on board? But it's not just showing that things are affordable, it's, it's reaching out to the people who need to hear the message. That's where it's difficult. 
Yes, and I, I mean, whenever I speak to Iranians about it, they say, oh, but tofu is expensive, this is expensive. Then I just tell them, why do you need tofu? We have never had tofu in our cuisine. So why do you suddenly want to include tofu? You know, our cuisine is rich in legumes, you know, and grains. So that is what we should actually be eating and eating more of rather than including, you know, ingredients we have never used in our cooking. And I think, again, that they have this impression because of the messages we put out there. You know, tofu is so associated with veganism. It's almost like kind of, you know, you cannot be a vegan and not eat tofu, but you can. I do find it interesting when I see, say, for example, a white individual teaching people a traditional Mexican dish that I grew up with, um, how to veganize it or make it healthier, plant-based. And I, I feel there's disconnect. When I say these things, I don't want, you know, it's, for me, it's not about discriminating on the other end. It's about voicing what is happening within us and why we feel the need for this support. This is why we're having this conversation. To be honest, I actually, that is again an issue I have been raising quite a lot because I think actually, I mean, his food appropriation, his cultural appropriation, taking, you know, a cuisine you didn't grow up with and veganizing it. I remember I veganized an Iranian dish and I put it out there on Facebook and somebody told me, oh, but uh, uh, a white chef, you should be using this. And I said, yeah, but, you know, I want it to taste just like my mom does, you know, cooks. And then she was giving me advice. And I said, you don't even know about my background. You know, Iran is such a huge country, you know, and she, but she kept uh, pretending that she knew. And then, yes, she is actually a chef and she does actually kind of um, do kind of Middle Eastern uh, cuisine. But she never says actually where she learned it from. And I felt actually very insulted. I said, that's my culture. I, you know, I wanted to taste just like my mom cooks, not like anybody else. And you feel like you know better than I do. You know better about my culture. And I think that is actually, it is something, a huge issue in the vegan community. You know, people coming and, you know, taking those traditional dishes and veganize them and they change it. And it's not going to attract people from those communities. If anything, it is going to actually uh, kind of, yes, uh, estrange them. You know, they just kind of feel like, you know, they have, it's almost like, you know, stealing from a different culture. It's interesting because I have a little segment on my YouTube channel where I like to invite you know, usually a podcast guest to come and cook with me if he or she likes to cook. So I like to invite them uh, on the show and I ask them to teach me something that they enjoy. And I, it was not intentional, but it's become a little bit more cultural. So I did have a Mexican guest come on and she taught me her version of uh, a plant-based pozole. I had another individual come on. She's Vietnamese. She came on and taught me how to do a spring roll being uh, plant-based. And so, and I loved it. I love the whole experience, but I love giving them that platform of you're the expert and I'm learning. Um, and, and, you know, there are other dishes that I didn't grow up with that I don't know what they're supposed to taste like because I, I didn't, you know, like shepherd's pie, which might be common in a lot of households. I didn't grow up with that. And so, and I stopped eating meat so many years ago that I don't know how the flavors are supposed to be in the first place. So I don't even, I tried making it once and <laughs> I failed. <laughs> the same here. Shepherd's pie is such a, I feel like it's such an English kind of dish. And I have never had it. Even when I was eating meat, I never had it. So for me, even a plant-based version I wouldn't know how it is supposed to taste and I want to add here I'm not talking about you know 
me cooking Mexican at home. That's okay. You know, we all try different cuisines, you know, from other countries. But actually taking that cuisine and trying to make money out of it, whereas that person from that community wouldn't be able actually to make money. That is the problem. And I think that is, you know, when we talk about, because a lot of people say, yeah, but, you know, I like to, especially when it comes to curry here in England, everybody likes to have a good curry. That's fine. We can make it at home. There's no problem with that. But if somebody is actually uh, creating really Indian curries and saying that, you know, a white person and uh, sells books and, you know, is making money versus an Indian making those curries, would be actually not uh, creating the same kind of um, attention to herself or them, uh, himself. So I think that is where the problem starts. Yes, thank you for clarifying that. I want to make sure that I emphasize your programs, your projects, the things that you're working on, because you're so involved in many ways. So the this project, Food on Diversity, um, would you like to tell us more? Sure. Well, I think, you know, when I look at uh, these, you know, kind of... Uh, uh, food. Food is actually like we all eat food. Uh, we don't eat food just for the energy. We eat food because uh, it tastes good, you know, and also because we associate it with some memories. So I think, you know, but at the same time, we see that um, westernized diets are actually increasing in countries like China, Iran, Middle East, and even Brazil. You know, people are eating more of those westernized diets. And it is interesting, as, uh, as they eat more westernized diets, like kind of high in processed foods, high in fat and sugar and um, salt, the rate of obesity, diabetes, heart disease and cancers is also growing. So there is definitely an association. And I think, you know, I really want to focus on uh, trying to find ways of introducing traditional diets to those communities again and getting them away from um, the westernized diets, you know, they are having. So it is a pro- an ongoing project, and uh, but also because, as I said, for me, racism is also important, the link between racism and food justice. So I like to talk about it, and uh, who knows, uh, collaborate with somebody and create something, I don't know, but it is something ongoing for me, definitely, because I think it is important that we have this discussion. So it's a, like a passion uh, project uh, of mine. So it's not something I want to make money <laughs> from, because I really just feel like, you know, I'm very passionate about it. Because if, uh, you, you know, you mentioned that um, all these videos, uh, resources are available, but a lot of these companies don't even have access to internet. They forget about that. We always assume, I mean, I had a client once in the community who didn't have access to a kitchen. So what is the point of me giving, you know, recipes to that person? So we always forget about, we always assume whatever our reality is, that is what everybody else's reality is. So I think it is really important to focus on social justice issues as well. You know, it's all interconnected. So that is one of my, you know, passion projects. But the other thing I'm really proud of is I just created the first ever course on plant-based sports nutrition. I did that uh, in collaboration with uh, Planted Health Professionals UK and veganfitness.com. I don't know if you're familiar with veganfitness.com, Nimai Delgado and, you know, his team. So Definitely. So, yes. So, I mean, I didn't uh, do all the lectures myself. I uh, had um, a team of eight, you know, dietitians and nutritionists. We all did it, came together. But, uh, you know, I had the idea. We put it together. So we are going to launch it very soon. 
Very nice. That's always a question that people that are getting into, uh, you know, working out always want to know what to eat. And you, it is a cause. So, so it is for dietitians, nutritionists, healthcare professionals, but also for fitness uh, professionals, but also anybody who just is interested in, you know, fitness, but wants to eat a healthy diet, a plant-based diet. So we put all the research together, you know, from the beginning, what they need to know about energy systems, carbohydrates, protein, how much do you need, when should you eat what, and supplements, and, you know, everything. So I hope that we have covered everything. We have different needs depending on our activity level. That is wonderful. My goodness, I can't wait to look into it. Um, Also, you've said that people lack cooking skills. Yes, I remember I was talking to someone and she said it's so much easier to take like some animal product, I don't know, know, beef or chicken or whatever, put it in the oven and eat that rather than actually cooking something. I think we have uh, have actually forgotten how to cook. We have forgotten how important it is to cook. And again, there are some communities where cooking is like a social, has a social aspect. You know, people meet together in the kitchen, sit and have a chat and cook at the same time. And I think we need to bring that uh, again. You know, we need to make it more attractive why people should, uh, you know, cook. Wow, this has been wonderful. I've really enjoyed speaking with you, Dr. Leila. Um, what is the best way for people to reach you if they want to learn more about you or any of your projects and programs? Uh, well, I'm active both on Facebook and social media, uh, you know, Instagram. Uh, I also have my own website, which is drleilad.com. Uh, so yes, they can connect with me on any of them and they find, you know, they can find out more about the sports nutrition course. They can find out to my newsletter and as soon as we launch it, you know, they can be notified. Yes. And thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you. I think I, I could have probably talked to a lot more. And, you know, I wanted to, there were so many questions I had of you, but maybe another time. Right. I know I could ask, I, I could ask a lot more because I think it's so rich, the content that you have shared with our listeners, especially because I don't cover it enough. I, I feel like not enough people are speaking about these important topics. So I was so glad to know that you have this rich background that you can contribute um, so that we can get the conversation going and raise the awareness that we, we need more support to get more people from our backgrounds on board um, towards eating more plant-based foods. So thank you, Dr. Leila. Thank you. You've been listening to the Healthy Lifestyle Solutions Podcast with your host, Maya Acosta. If you've enjoyed this podcast, do us a favor and share with one friend who can benefit from this episode. Feel free to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts. That helps us to spread our message. Thanks for listening.